0: This is the Journal of American History podcast for June 2015. This month, June 2015, the Journal of American History publishes a special issue, Historians and the Carceral State, consisting of 14 essays by historians who introduce readers to the growing literature on how the carceral state emerged in the early republic, was consolidated in the 19th century, and then underwent phenomenal expansion during the 20th century. Topics include the role of incarcerated black women, the rise of undocumented Latinos in the federal prison system, the role of white suburban drug use and the crack epidemic in the racialized war on drugs, and how prison building drove the political economy of the Sun Belt. We could not have undertaken such a significant and complex project without the superb work of three of our colleagues who served as consulting editors, Professors Kelly Lytle Hernandez of UCLA, Khalil Gibran Mohammed, Director of the Schomburg Center for Research and Black Culture in New York City, and a former colleague of mine here in the History Department at Indiana University Bloomington, and a former Associate Editor here at the Journal of American History and Heather Ann Thompson of the University of Michigan. Khalil Mohammed is overseas and could not join in this conversation, but we welcome Kelly Lytle Hernandez and Heather Ann Thompson, who will talk with us about the many issues that emerge from this project. Kelly and Heather, welcome, and thank you so much for doing this.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Let me begin by sharing with listeners some of the grim realities that the three of you write about in your introduction to the special issue constructing the carceral state. The United States holds the world's largest prison population, caging more humans than any other nation on earth. In a situation that is not only internationally unparalleled, but also historically unprecedented, every day more than 2 million people are barred somewhere within this nation's vast archipelago of prisons, jails, and immigration detention centers. Another 7.2 million are on probation, on parole, or under a deportation order. Indeed, Blacks and Latinos make up 72% of the federal prison population and the majority of the state prison populations. By the end of this year, one in three young African-American males and one in six young Latino males will be locked away from society. The policing apparatus that fills the nation's carceral facilities is even more capacious. Having been subject to arrest, an estimated 65 million people in the United States have criminal records. Scores more have been stopped and interrogated, but not arrested. For example, the nation's largest police force, the New York Police Department, has conducted nearly 5 million stop-and-frisk investigations from 2003 to 2012. Less than 12% of such street interrogations have resulted in arrests, but close to 90% of those stopped and frisked in the city are young Black and Latino men. Mass incarceration has had a major impact on everything from how urban and suburban spaces have evolved to how electoral maps are drawn to how national borders are defined and maintained to how state and federal resources are distributed to how social movements are made and unmade, to how gender roles are bolstered and undermined, to how cultural norms and identities are forged and reinforced, to how sexuality is policed and profiled. Most notably, policing and punishment and detention and e- deportation powerfully shape the U.S. economy and American democracy. Well, that makes for, for a grim reading. Heather and Kelly, and uh, Heather, let me start with you. Could you help us help listeners understand uh, some of the ways that uh, the, the carceral state powerfully shapes American economy and American democracy?
2: Sure, um, I think that introduction you gave, um, just the statistics alone, give us a sense of how powerful this major policy shift we made uh, in the late 1960s and early 1970s was, uh, but one of the reasons why it's really important for historians to look at it is that the tentacles or the, the impact of this policy shift has been so extraordinary. And you mentioned two really fundamental ways in which it's impacted, um, our nation in, particularly in the post-war period. And that is impacting our economy and also impacting our democracy. And Without getting too bogged down in details, one way to think about it is that this massive policy shift that we chose uh, as a nation at a moment of relatively unremarkable crime rates set in motion a kind of a policing apparatus and a prison apparatus that in turn distorted our democracy by rendering anyone who was incarcerated unable to vote, but also uh, disfranchising them long after that. Um, and also, uh, by something called prison gerrymandering, which is counting people where they're locked up for the census rather than where they they originally live, there is another distortion of the democracy, and that's really important because what it's meant is that this policy, again, that was chosen at a time when it was unnecessary to do so, is very difficult to undo, or at least it's very difficult for the people most impacted by it to undo it through the traditional means, through the ballot box, for example. And so think about this historical irony right at the moment, for example, when we pass the Voting Rights Act, which is seen as a very important civil rights advance, expanding the franchise. The same year, we start the war on crime, which is meanwhile, completely undermining the black vote in this country. So, So it has impacts well beyond just the simple fact of who's locked up and who isn't. And for the economy, of course, it has rendered just, you know, millions of people permanently unemployable, uh, while meanwhile making uh, a profit center for really allowing people to profit off of human misery, which is uh, another, you know, fundamental shift.
0: And uh, thank you, Heather. That last point is I was struck in reading both some of these uh, essays, but also elsewhere of just how important to many, especially rural uh, economies, uh, the world of prisons has has become. So, there is now isn't there a kind of an entanglement in the economy of of this huge prison uh, prison system?
2: Well, there absolutely is, and, and Kelly can certainly speak to how this has uh, manifested itself. For example, with immigration detention centers, um, and certainly for prisons, it has again, linked the prison complex to people's economic need for a job. And as such, it has made certain pockets of Americans eager to vote for imprisonment as a simple job creator. But the reality is we've seen historians do this work. Um, In fact, it doesn't particularly bolster the economy for anyone other than the corporations who are either servicing prisons and detention centers or actually uh, building them.
0: Thank you, Heather. Kelly, let's, let's turn to the issue of, of immigration. Uh, the three of you write in your introduction, the U.S.-Mexico borderlands are another hot spot for policing and confinement. In the borderlands, both the war on drugs and the war on terror have generated constant street-level interrogations and dramatic night raids, but immigration control drives the unique dynamics of policing and confinement in the region. The U.S. Border Patrol is the nation's second-largest police force. Since 2000, Border Patrol officers have made nearly 12 million apprehensions in the region, with Latinas and Latinos, led by Mexicans, Guatemalans, Hondurans, and El Salvadoranos, accounting for 92% of those apprehended. No U.S. police practice is as racially concentrated as immigration law enforcement in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands, nor is any other sector of policing and confinement growing as rapidly. So, uh, talk with us about this issue of immigration and detention and this massive growth, and and what historians have to contribute to complex set of issues.
1: Sure, thanks, Ed. Um, well, U.S. immigration control and immigrant detention, in particular, in the last ten years or last five years have become the most dynamic and rapidly growing area of incarceration in the United States. So to be able to talk about the carceral state, we have to begin to really bridge the conversations between um, criminal justice and immigration control in the United States. And I think all of the issues that Heather has already laid out in terms of the economic and political exclusions for felons in particular or the criminally convicted are implicit to undocumented status. So unauthorized immigrants cannot vote. They do not qualify for social welfare benefits and they're subject to really the, the relentless specter of deportation. And they're also prohibited from lawfully working in the United States, so they experience really high rates of occupational segregation and and, and wage theft. So although the mechanisms are a little bit different um, and bring their own particularities, uh, much of what Heather has outlined in terms of the impacts of of the criminal justice system on American democracy and the American economy, um, apply to immigration control, especially as deportations have skyrocketed since the turn of the 21st century and deportability has also expanded. So I'm so glad that with this volume we were able to really begin some of the work among historians of bridging immigration history and immigration stories with those that are happening around um, crime and punishment.
0: Thank you uh, let, me ask, let me ask both of you, and maybe Kelly will start with you. There's a point some years ago now that so many of these essays point out where where this begins to change, where the tremendous energies for building the carceral state uh, just become overwhelming. Can you give listeners a sense of of, of when that is and, and why that is?
1: Well, in terms of immigration control. There is a feeding pattern from the rise of the carceral state and what's happening in criminal justice um, into immigration control. So it's not until 1986 and 1988 that you get new federal legislation that really bind um, criminal punishments to deportation. So in particular, you have the creation of this set of laws called aggravated felonies, which apply just to non-citizens. An aggravated felony is something that most of us wouldn't regard as a felony. It could range if we murder, it could rape, but it could also be um, fairly small level fraud or false documentation. And these aggravated felonies trigger automatic deportation with really no protections or no no right to asylum. Um, So that's been really important in the realm of um, immigration control. They also tend to trigger required detentions. So it's the ways in which the, the carceral logic of locking people up for for so long, for so little, that makes it rational um, for big changes that happen in the immigration regime, that really spurs the, the phenomenal growth of immigrant detention in the 1990s and the early
0: 2000s. Oh, Thank you, Kelly. And, and Heather, uh, what do you as a historian think about the the kind of creation story of this? Is there a, is there a point, is it in the 60s and the 70s when the war on crime uh, just becomes such a, a popular set of 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 policies that that the energies take off here
2: well that's a really great question and and it's actually a question that's implicit to many of the pieces in this special issue uh which is that historians are really trying to sort out uh what is consistent in american history in terms of this criminal justice uh and policing narrative and and what is new and what is different And what I would say is that on the one hand, uh, we have a very important, consistent history of criminalization of people of color and poor people. And so the way in which that ebbs and flows and manifests itself in policy, you'll see in in these pieces, um, and and they're dated differently depending on uh, who we're looking at, depending on what region of the country. But... All of that said, there is no question that in terms of a dramatic and very easily located uh, shift in policy, uh, that that happens um, really after Lyndon Johnson creates uh, the Law Enforcement Assistance Act in 1964 and 5, creates the apparatus. That will make possible what we will know to be eventually mass incarceration, and that will of course become mass incarceration as that war on crime, that really historically unprecedented war on crime, gets added to uh, with the war on drugs, um, with specific policies well into the 90s, like the you know Crime Control Act of 94, with very specific intensification of uh, criminalization of immigration, um, but. There really is a breaking point, and um, social scientists really date the, the rise after 1972. It's a precipitous and dramatic increase in the number of people that are uh, detained, policed, and actually imprisoned in this country that we as historians have to explain and we have to explain it because it is actually not particularly, it's its its not obvious why we do that. Um, again, as I mentioned, you know, we do this at a moment when the murder rate had not been that low uh, for a very long time and indeed had been much higher uh, in the 20s and 30s. Um, we did it. Uh, at a moment of intense civil rights upheaval. And, you know, we as historians can see a lot of interesting patterns that we have to unpack. I mean, the last time that uh, Black spaces were criminalized so precipitously and, and prisons were filled so precipitously with overwhelmingly Black bodies was right after the Civil War in the South, when, again, a policy shift determine things to be crimes that had not been crimes before and that penalties for pre-existing crimes or, or previously determined crimes were much worse. So we, we historians are really, you know, it's just vital that we're at this table to unpack what happened and when.
1: Hey, can I jump in there? I just want to emphasize what, what Heather is saying. Um, I was sitting in a meeting just the other day with some policymakers and they continuously used the, the data that within the last 10 or 15, 20 years Um, crime rates have dropped alongside the rising of mass incarceration. And the analysis that they put forward is that mass incarceration is producing um, lower crime rates. And I think this is absolutely where historians need to get into the the conversation and talk about the longer history, the longer trajectories, um, the different politics that go into shaping policy that creates a rise or a fall incarceration over the long durée, because I think we have some really important interventions to make into that logic that closely connects crime rates to incarceration rates.
0: Ah, thank you, Kelly. Uh, let me ask both of you, uh, given what we've done in this special issue, what what do you see the work of historians uh, in the special issue and beyond? bringing to policy conversations Heather let's start with you
2: well i'm I'm actually really amazed and heartened to see how important history is becoming to current discussions about uh, the carceral crisis that we're in whether that is the policing crisis or whether that is the incarceration and immigration crisis, or I should say immigration detention crisis, um, you know, I I think that both Kelly, myself, and also Khalil have been um, increasingly invited into discussions where policy folks are deliberately asking, you know, how did we get here? Um, how might we uh, get out of this mess? And historians are uniquely positioned to answer those questions in a meaningful way. Um, recently, uh, I had the opportunity to participate in what I think was really a historic bipartisan summit on criminal justice reform in Washington, D.C. And, and you know, it was sort of surreal. We had everyone there from Newt Gingrich to Eric Holder to the ACLU to the Koch brothers. Um And and it's in those environments when it's really important to have historians because people very quickly lose their sense of change over time and perspective. And they very quickly might say, for example, we should decarcerate today because it's too expensive. But if they don't understand the origins of why we did it, uh, then we might fix the money problem but still reproduce the racialized policing or or continue to uh, only concentrate uh, incarceration in certain communities to just do it more cheaply. So we have a lot to contribute, I think, and that's great news for the historical profession.
0: Mm, Thank you, Heather. Kelly, your thoughts on this?
2: Well, I think that history is the lens
1: to the present, and it is really what helps us to see uh, what's at stake and what's at play in the age of of mass incarceration. So it's the work that we are doing to talk about the historical consistencies and inconsistencies since the 19th century, in particular, since the, since Black emancipation, um, that I think can really begin to illuminate um, the deeper politics, the deeper commitments that are being made with every policy decision um, in our contemporary moment.
0: Thank you, Kelly. Let's turn to uh, something that we we thought about as as uh, we were putting this all together. There are 14 essays, your introduction and, and 13 focused essays. There were things we couldn't cover uh, in in the JH, uh, and exciting future work for for historians to do. What are some of the ways, particularly after having uh, done this with us, what are some projects areas that you see as just kind of ripe for for historians to work on?
2: Well, you know, one of the most amazing things about this topic is that there's never an end to it. There's so much still that we don't know and so much that we have to explore. I can honestly say that there is, if it, for dissertation writers, there's there's no op- more open of a field uh, in the sense that, Every time we think we know something, we only know a piece of it. We might know what happened in one city or we might know what happened in one region or to one group of people. So sky's the limit. For me personally, I'm really interested in really digging into what the relationship is between the welfare state and the carceral state and the surveillance state. Uh, these tend to be very separate historical literatures, and it just given the timing of when we get mass incarceration and, again, the tentacles that I mentioned at first, I think it's really important that historians start to uh, really tease out the ways in which these things are linked and intertwined but also different Uh, maybe working uh, uh, against one another, or maybe, in fact, working completely in sync. So we need some really good histories of the surveillance state, the welfare state, the carceral state, and then to think on the ground about, I think, even more self-consciously and and historically about policing, particularly in light of recent developments in Baltimore and so forth.
0: Mm, Thank you, Heather. Kelly, uh, what are your thoughts about this?
2: Well, like
1: Heather, I think that there's just so much work um, to be done in this field of study, and um, although perhaps African American history and urban history are the, the better examined areas of U.S. cross history, we still need a lot of work there. Um, but I think the essays in this volume also demonstrate the ways in which gender, uh, sexuality, class, immigration status, and even imperialism are also key dimensions of the carceral state. So I would really hope that some graduate students out there would, would pick up those those stories. Um, but for me, I think that one of the most exciting regions of um, carceral history right now is in the field of American Indian and uh, indigenous studies. Um, so I would ask people to keep an eye open for a journal is now um, editing a special volume on carceral states in American Indian and Asian American history. I think that's going to be a very, very important contribution. And um, so I think that's a very exciting area of study. I also think that um, putting the U S carceral state within a global perspective is going to be really important in, in coming years to think about um, How we fare globally, but also the impact that um, incarceration in the United States has had on um, other nation states.
2: If I might just uh, just absolutely uh, second what Kelly said. I mean, I think that the way in which we have studied this relatively in isolation from the international scene has been to our detriment. Because um, while we are on the one hand an international outlier, on the other hand, in terms of how many people we lock up. Uh, on the other hand, much of the the policies and practices that led to this uh we do freely in other countries and you know, we need to explore the ways in which, for example, you know, the the drug war at home is linked to uh, drug wars abroad um, and over borders uh, that we participate in, um, but also actual just imprisonment. Um, we are such an outlier. But what's happening right now is that many countries are looking to our system. And and, and rather than being appalled, they're actually kind of fascinating by what privatization might uh, might offer. And so the the globalization component to this story is vital. And, you know, I mean, we have to do first things first. And this is the American history piece of it. But I do think uh, Kelly's absolutely right. This is this is the the tentacles. Again, we get back to that theme. This is touching everything.
0: Mm -hmm. And are there uh, that's really interesting. Are there colleagues that you both know uh, overseas who who are working on similar kinds of projects uh, to the ones that that we have in the J.H.?
2: Yeah, I mean I certainly know that there there are many scholars in uh that I know in uh, various countries, mostly, you know, European countries who are just fascinated with what we're doing and they're very interested in the US story and they're also interested in criminal justice reform in their own countries and, and in writing those histories. Um, and also, you know, Australia, South Africa, uh, um, and certainly in, in uh, Latin American, Central American countries, there's a real scholarly interest in unpacking this. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that it seems to that American historians seem very disconnected from those studies and
0: those literatures.
2: And that's what I'm hoping we
0: can remedy. Mm-hmm. Kelly, any, any thoughts on this?
2: Sure, well, I would just
1: add to that that, in my experience, it is um, there are a hotbeds of study in in Europe and in in Mexico on this issue, but in particular on the issue of immigration controls. You look at what's happening in Europe right now, um, you think about Central America and, and mexico, and these are um, places that are um, rife for um, for study and, and then the u s impact in terms of training um, immigration officers in particular and providing technology for immigration control to to Europe and to Mexico. Um, This has made scholars very concerned about um, U.S. support of a ever widening um, border.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Thank you both for that. So there's so much in in these uh, essays to talk about, but uh, given the limited time, of, of the podcast, I suppose, will hope that listeners will will go and find these essays of interest. So let me conclude just with this question. And Kelly, why don't we start with you? Uh, can you talk a little about your own work? Uh, what What's down the pike? What are the next projects that, that you're envisioning?
1: Oh, sure. Well, I'm right now finishing up a book on um, the history of incarceration in Los Angeles. So I don't know if you know this, but L.A. actually incarcerates more people than any other city in the world. So really here, L.A., my hometown, is the, the epicenter, epicenter of the carceral state. So I spent the last six years trying to unravel um, when, why, and how the City of Angels became the City of Inmates. And it's a journey that has taken me, and Evan knows as well, uh, all, w- all the way back to the days of Spanish conquest to think about what are the, the roots of um, human caging in, in this city? And I am following this and making an argument about um, incarceration as a project of human elimination in a settler colonial state. So that's the, the, the history and the analysis that I've been pursuing for the last few years. Uh, and it's really brought me to the, the chilling conclusion that um, today... The right of mass incarceration is a project of mass elimination. And so I've decided that after this, I'm going to study, uh, I don't know, water lilies and unicorns or something, yes. something a little bit more upbeat. I,
0: I, I understand that well. <laughs> yes, thank you. That's That's an incredible project, Kelly. Thank you for that. And Heather.
2: Well, so I am I have finally finished uh, a book that I've been working on for a decade on the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971. And that project itself is very instructive as to why it is uh, both uh, just absolutely fascinating to do carceral state history, but also often difficult because... So many times the sources are very elusive. I mean, they are deliberately hidden. They are, you know, often, uh, you know, sealed away in places that are very difficult for historians, uh, lawyers, uh, citizens in general, just to to find. And so thank goodness that project is going to be out for the 2016 anniversary of Attica, which is next fall. Um, And then what I'm working on is next is this question of surveillance. Um, I'm particularly interested in the fact that we have a whole historiography of social movements in the 1960s and 70s. Um, and we have a sense, a bit of a sense of, uh, of what the state, meaning the FBI, meaning COINTELPRO and so forth, but what it had to do with, uh, that history. But we actually don't know very much at all. So as a historian, I want to come at this question of how did it work? Um, you know, everything from how were informants found and paid and instructed to what did they actually do and what did they report? And how in turn does that impact upon democracy and the social history, economic history, political history of the post-war period. Um, Again, I'm a little worried it's going to be one of those projects that never gets done because it's going to be a question of sources. But I think it's important because if anything, working on the carceral state will show you is that, um, you know, we really don't know anything until we understand uh, these questions of power and law and, and policing and surveillance, um, we we don't really know what happened if we don't know that. So
0: that's kind of the next project. Mm, that's wonderful. Thank you both. Well, we owe both of you and Khalil a, a huge, huge debt of thanks for the work that you've done on the special issue. We couldn't have done it without you. So thank you both, and thank you both for taking the time to do the podcast.
1: Thanks so it's much. A kind of pleasure.
0: Thank you.
2: This podcast is produced by the Journal of American History, the leading scholarly publication and the Journal of Record in American History. Visit us on the web at www.journalofamericanhistory.org. Support the journal by becoming a member of the Organization of American Historians. To join, call us at 812-855-7311 or visit us online at www.oah.org. In addition to receiving the journal four times a year, OAH members have access to a growing number of member benefits, ranging from discounts on a wide variety of insurance products to discounted subscriptions to the ACLS Humanities eBook library to reduce registration fees for the annual meeting held
0: every spring. Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Please join us in September for our next episode. If you have any comments or questions, please send an email to jahcast at oah.org.